21. The Iranian Threat Who is the gravest danger to world peace? Throughout the world, there is great relief and optimism about the nuclear deal reached in Vienna between Iran and the P5 plus 1 nations, the five veto-holding members of the UN Security Council and Germany. Most of the world apparently shares the assessment of the U.S. Arms Control Association that the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action establishes a strong and effective formula for blocking all of the pathways by which Iran could acquire material for nuclear weapons for more than a generation and a verification system to promptly detect and deter possible efforts by Iran to covertly pursue nuclear weapons that will last indefinitely. There are, however, striking exceptions to the general enthusiasm. The United States and its closest allies, Israel and Saudi Arabia. One consequence of this is that U.S. corporations, much to their chagrin, are prevented from flocking to Tehran along with their European counterparts. Prominent sectors of U.S. power and opinion share the stand of the two regional allies and so are in a state of virtual hysteria over the Iranian threat. Sober commentary in the United States, pretty much across the spectrum, declares that country to be the gravest threat to world peace. Even supporters of the agreement here are wary, given the exceptional gravity of the threat. After all, how can we trust the Iranians with their terrible record of aggression, violence, disruption, and deceit? Opposition within the political class is so strong that public opinion has shifted quickly from significant support for the deal to an even split. Republicans are almost unanimously opposed to the agreement. The current Republican primaries illustrate the proclaimed reasons. Senator Ted Cruz, considered one of the intellectuals among the crowded field of presidential candidates, warns that Iran may still be able to produce nuclear weapons and could someday use one to set off an electromagnetic pulse that would take down the electrical grid of the entire eastern seaboard of the United States, killing tens of millions of Americans. Two other candidates, former Florida Governor Jeb Bush and Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, battled over whether to bomb Iran immediately after being elected or after the first cabinet meeting. The one candidate with some foreign policy experience, Lindsey Graham, describes the deal as a death sentence for the state of Israel, which will certainly come as a surprise to Israeli intelligence and strategic analysts, and which Graham knows to be utter nonsense, raising immediate questions about his actual motives for saying so. It is important to bear in mind that the Republicans long ago abandoned the pretense of functioning as a normal parliamentary party. They have, as respected conservative political commentator Norman Ornstein of the right-wing American Enterprise Institute observed, become a radical insurgency that scarcely seeks to participate in normal congressional politics. Since the days of President Ronald Reagan, the party leadership has plunged so far into the pockets of the very rich and the corporate sector that they can attract votes only by mobilizing parts of the population that have not previously been an organized political force. Among them are extremist evangelical Christians, now probably a majority of Republican voters, remnants of the former slaveholding states, 
nativists who are terrified that they are taking our white Christian Anglo-Saxon country away from us, and others who turn the Republican primaries into spectacles remote from the mainstream of modern society, though not from the mainstream of the most powerful country in world history. The departure from global standards, however, goes far beyond the bounds of the Republican radical insurgency. Across the spectrum, there is general agreement with the pragmatic conclusion of General Martin Dempsey, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that the Vienna deal does not prevent the United States from striking Iranian facilities if officials decide that it is cheating on the agreement, even though a unilateral military strike is far less likely if Iran behaves. Former Clinton and Obama Middle East negotiator Dennis Ross typically recommends that Iran must have no doubts that if we see it moving towards a weapon, that would trigger the use of force. Even after the termination of the deal, when Iran is free to do what it wants. In fact, the existence of a termination point 15 years hence is, he adds, the greatest single problem with the agreement. He also suggests that the United States provide Israel with B-52 bombers and bunker-busting bombs to protect itself before that terrifying date arrives. The Greatest Threat Opponents of the nuclear deal charge that it does not go far enough. Some supporters agree, holding that, if the Vienna deal is to mean anything, the whole of the Middle East must rid itself of weapons of mass destruction. The author of those words, Iran's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Javad Zarif, added that Iran, in its national capacity and as current chairman of the non-aligned movement, the governments of the large majority of the world's population, is prepared to work with the international community to achieve these goals, knowing full well that, along the way, it will probably run into many hurdles raised by the skeptics of peace and diplomacy. Iran has signed... A historic nuclear deal, he continues, and now it is the turn of Israel, the holdout. Israel, of course, is one of the three nuclear powers, along with India and Pakistan, whose nuclear weapons programs have been abetted by the United States and who refuse to sign the Non-Proliferation Treaty, NPT. Zarif was referring to the regular five-year NPT review conference, which ended in failure in April when the United States, joined this time by Canada and Great Britain, once again blocked efforts to move toward a zone free of weapons of mass destruction in the Middle East. These efforts have been led by Egypt and other Arab states for 20 years. Two of the leading figures promoting them at the NPT and other UN agencies and at the Pugwash conferences Jayanta Danapala and Sergio Duarte observed that the successful adoption in 1995 of the resolution on the establishment of a zone free of weapons of mass destruction, WMD, in the Middle East, was the main element of a package that permitted the indefinite extension of the NPT. The NPT, in turn, is the most important arms control treaty of all. If it were adhered to, it could end the scourge of nuclear weapons. Repeatedly, implementation of the resolution has been blocked by the United States, most recently by President Obama in 2010 and again in 2015. Danapala and Duarte comment that the effort was again blocked on behalf of a state that is not a party to the NPT, 
and is widely believed to be the only one in the region possessing nuclear weapons. A polite and understated reference to Israel. This failure, they hope, will not be the coup de grace to the two long-standing NPT objectives of accelerated progress on nuclear disarmament and establishing a Middle Eastern WMD-free zone. Their article in the Journal of the Arms Control Association is entitled, Is There a Future for the NPT? A nuclear weapons-free zone in the Middle East is a straightforward way to address whatever threat Iran allegedly poses, but a great deal more is at stake in Washington's continuing sabotage of the effort in order to protect its Israeli client. This is not the only case when opportunities to end the alleged Iranian threat have been undermined by Washington, raising further questions about just what is actually at stake. In considering this matter, it is instructive to examine both the unspoken assumptions and the questions that are rarely asked. Let us consider a few of these assumptions, beginning with the most serious, that Iran is the gravest threat to world peace. In the United States, it is a virtual cliché among high officials and commentators that Iran wins that grim prize. There is also a world outside the United States, and although its views are not reported in the mainstream here, perhaps they are of some interest. According to the leading Western polling agencies, Win Gallup International, the prize for greatest threat is won by the United States which the world regards as the gravest threat to world peace by a large margin. In second place, far below, is Pakistan. Its ranking probably inflated by the Indian vote. Iran is ranked below those two, along with China, Israel, North Korea, and Afghanistan. The world's leading supporter of terrorism. Turning to the next obvious question, what, in fact, is the Iranian threat? Why, for example, are Israel and Saudi Arabia trembling in fear over the threat of Iran? Whatever the threat is, it can hardly be military. Years ago, U.S. intelligence informed Congress that Iran has very low military expenditures by the standards of the region, and that its strategic doctrines are defensive, designed, that is, to deter aggression. This intelligence further reports that it has no evidence Iran is pursuing a nuclear weapons program, and that Iran's nuclear program and its willingness to keep open the possibility of developing nuclear weapons is a central part of its deterrence strategy. The authoritative Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, CIPRI, Review of Global Armaments, ranks the United States, as usual, far in the lead in military expenditures. China comes in second, with about one-third of U.S. expenditures. Far below are Russia and Saudi Arabia, which are nonetheless well above any Western European state. Iran is scarcely mentioned. Full details are provided in an April report from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, which finds a conclusive case that the Arab Gulf states have an overwhelming advantage over Iran in both military spending and access to modern arms. Iran's military spending is a fraction of Saudi Arabia's, and far below even the spending of the United Arab Emirates, UAE. Altogether, the Gulf Cooperation Council states, Bahrain, Kuwait, 
Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, outspend Iran on arms by a factor of about eight, an imbalance that goes back decades. The CSIS report adds that the Arab Gulf states have acquired and are acquiring some of the most advanced and effective weapons in the world, while Iran has essentially been forced to live in the past, often relying on systems originally delivered at the time of the Shah. In other words, they are virtually obsolete. When it comes to Israel, of course, the imbalance is even greater. Possessing the most advanced U.S. weaponry and a virtual offshore military base for the global superpower, it also has a huge stock of nuclear weapons. To be sure, Israel faces the existential threat of Iranian pronouncements. Supreme leader Khomeini and former President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad famously threatened it with destruction, except that they didn't. And if they had, it would have been of little moment. They predicted that, under God's grace, the Zionist regime will be wiped off the map. According to another translation, Ahmadinejad says Israel must vanish from the page of time, citing a statement by the Ayatollah Khomeini during the period when Israel and Iran were tacitly allied. In other words, they hope that regime change will someday take place. Even that falls far short of the direct calls in both Washington and Tel Aviv for regime change in Iran, not to speak of the actions taken to implement regime change. These, of course, go back to the actual regime change of 1953, when the United States and Britain organized a military coup to overthrow Iran's parliamentary government and install the dictatorship of the Shah, who proceeded to amass one of the world's worst human rights records. These crimes were known to readers of the reports of Amnesty International and other human rights organizations, but not to readers of the U.S. press, which has devoted plenty of space to Iranian human rights violations, but only since 1979, when the Shah's regime was overthrown. The instructive facts are documented carefully in a study by Mansour Farhang and William Dorman. None of this is a departure from the norm. The United States, as is well known, holds the world championship title in regime change, and Israel is no laggard either. The most destructive of its invasions of Lebanon in 1982 was explicitly aimed at regime change, as well as at securing its hold on the occupied territories. The pretexts offered were thin and collapsed at once. That, too, is not unusual and pretty much independent of the nature of the society, from the laments in the Declaration of Independence about the merciless Indian savages to Hitler's defense of Germany from the wild terror of the Poles. No serious analyst believes that Iran would ever use or even threaten to use a nuclear weapon if it had one, and thereby face instant destruction. There is, however, real concern that a nuclear weapon might fall into jihadi hands, not from Iran, where the threat is minuscule, but from U.S. ally, Pakistan, where it is very real. In the journal of the British Royal Institute of International Affairs, Chatham House, two leading Pakistani nuclear scientists, Pervez Hudboy and Zia Mian, write that increasing fears of militants seizing nuclear weapons or materials and unleashing nuclear terrorism have led to the creation of a dedicated force of over 20,000 troops to guard nuclear facilities. There is no reason to assume, however, that this force would be immune to the problems associated with the units guarding regular military facilities. 
which have frequently suffered attacks with insider help. In brief, the problem is real, but is displaced to Iran thanks to fantasies concocted for other reasons. Other concerns about the Iranian threat include its role as the world's leading supporter of terrorism, which primarily refers to its support for Hezbollah and Hamas. Both of those movements emerged in resistance to U.S.-backed Israeli violence and aggression, which vastly exceeds anything attributed to these organizations. Whatever one thinks about them, or other beneficiaries of Iranian support, Iran hardly ranks high in support of terror worldwide, even within the Muslim world. Among Islamic states, Saudi Arabia is far in the lead as a sponsor of Islamic terror, not only through direct funding by wealthy Saudis and others in the Gulf, but even more by the missionary zeal with which the Saudis promulgate their extremist Wahhabi Salafi version of Islam through Quranic schools, mosques, clerics, and other means available to a religious dictatorship with enormous oil wealth. ISIS is an extremist offshoot of Saudi religious extremism and its fanning of jihadi flames. In Generation of Islamic Terror, however, nothing can compare with the U.S. War on Terror, which has helped to spread the plague from a small tribal area in the Afghanistan-Pakistan borderlands to a vast region from West Africa to Southeast Asia. The invasion of Iraq alone escalated terror attacks by a factor of seven in the first year, well beyond even what had been predicted by intelligence agencies. Drone warfare against marginalized and oppressed tribal societies also elicits demands for revenge, as ample evidence indicates. Those two Iranian clients, Hezbollah and Hamas, also share the crime of winning the popular vote in the only free elections in the Arab world. Hezbollah is guilty of the even more heinous crime of compelling Israel to withdraw from its occupation of southern Lebanon in violation of Security Council orders dating back decades, an illegal regime of terror punctuated with episodes of extreme violence, murder, and destruction. Fueling Instability Another concern, voiced at the United Nations by U.S. Ambassador Samantha Power, is the instability that Iran fuels beyond its nuclear program. The United States will continue to scrutinize this misbehavior, she declared. In that, she echoed the assurance offered by Defense Secretary Ashton Carter while standing on Israel's northern border that we will continue to help Israel counter Iran's malign influence in supporting Hezbollah, and that the United States reserves the right to use military force against Iran as it deems appropriate. The way Iran fuels instability can be seen particularly dramatically in Iraq, where, among other crimes, it alone came at once to the aid of Kurds defending themselves from the ISIS invasion, and where it is building a $2.5 billion power plant to try to bring electrical power back to its level before the U.S. invasion. Ambassador Power's usage is standard. When the United States invades a country resulting in hundreds of thousands killed and millions of refugees, along with barbarous torture and destruction that Iraqis compare to the Mongol invasions, leaving Iraq the unhappiest country in the world, according to Win Gallup polls, 
meanwhile igniting sectarian conflict that is tearing the region to shreds and laying the basis for the ISIS monstrosity, along with our Saudi ally. That is stabilization. Iran's shameful actions are fueling instability. The farce of this standard usage sometimes reaches levels that are almost surreal, as when liberal commentator James Chase, former editor of Foreign Affairs, explained that the United States sought to destabilize a freely elected Marxist government in Chile because we were determined to seek stability under the Pinochet dictatorship. Others are outraged that Washington should negotiate at all with a contemptible regime like Iran's, with its horrifying human rights record, and urge instead that we pursue an American-sponsored alliance between Israel and the Sunni states. So writes Leon Wisseltier, contributing editor to the venerable liberal journal The Atlantic, who can barely conceal his visceral hatred for all things Iranian. With a straight face, this respected liberal intellectual recommends that Saudi Arabia, which makes Iran look like a virtual paradise, and Israel, with its vicious crimes in Gaza and elsewhere, should ally to teach that country good behavior. Perhaps the recommendation is not entirely unreasonable when we consider the human rights records of the regimes the United States has imposed and supported throughout the world. Though the Iranian government is no doubt a threat to its own people, it regrettably breaks no records in this regard and does not descend to the level of favored U.S. allies. That, however, cannot be the concern of Washington, and surely not Tel Aviv or Riyadh. It might also be useful to recall, as surely Iranians do, that not a day has passed since 1953 when the United States was not harming Iranians. As soon as Iranians overthrew the hated U.S.-imposed regime of the Shah in 1979, Washington at once turned to supporting Saddam Hussein's murderous attack on Iran. President Reagan went so far as to deny Saddam's major crime, his chemical warfare assault on Iraq's Kurdish population, which he blamed on Iran instead. When Saddam was tried for crimes under U.S. auspices, that horrendous crime, as well as others in which the United States was complicit, was carefully excluded from the charges, which were restricted to one of his minor crimes, the murder of 148 Shiites in 1982, a footnote to his gruesome record. After the Iran-Iraq war ended, the United States continued to support Saddam Hussein, Iran's primary enemy. President George H.W. Bush even invited Iraqi nuclear engineers to the United States for advanced training in weapons production, an extremely serious threat to Iran. Sanctions against Iran were intensified, including against foreign firms dealing with it, and actions were initiated to bar it from the international financial system. In recent years, the hostility has extended to sabotage, the murder of nuclear scientists, presumably by Israel, and cyber war, openly proclaimed with pride. The Pentagon regards cyber war as an act of war, justifying a military response, as does NATO, which affirmed in September 2014 that cyber attacks may trigger the collective defense obligations of the NATO powers. When we are the target, that is, 
not the perpetrators. The prime rogue state. It is only fair to add that there have been breaks in this pattern. President George W. Bush provided several significant gifts to Iran by destroying its major enemies, Saddam Hussein and the Taliban. He even placed Iran's Iraqi enemy under its influence after the U.S. defeat, which was so severe that Washington had to abandon its officially declared goals of establishing permanent military bases, enduring camps, and ensuring that U.S. corporations would have privileged access to Iraq's vast oil resources. Do Iranian leaders intend to develop nuclear weapons today? We can decide for ourselves how credible their denials are, but that they had such intentions in the past is beyond question, since it was asserted openly on the highest authority, which informed foreign journalists that Iran would develop nuclear weapons, certainly and sooner than one thinks. The father of Iran's nuclear energy program and former head of Iran's atomic energy organization was confident that the leadership's plan was to build a nuclear bomb. The CIA also reported that it had no doubt Iran would develop nuclear weapons if neighboring countries did, as they have. All of this was under the Shah, the highest authority just quoted. That is, during the period when high U.S. officials, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Kissinger, and others, were urging the Shah to proceed with nuclear programs and pressuring universities to accommodate these efforts. As part of these efforts, my own university, MIT, made a deal with the Shah to admit Iranian students to the nuclear engineering program in return for grants from the Shah, over the very strong objections of the student body, but with comparably strong faculty support in a meeting that older faculty will doubtless remember well. Asked later why he supported such programs under the Shah, but opposed them more recently, Kissinger responded honestly that Iran was an ally then. Putting aside absurdities, what is the real threat of Iran that inspires such fear and fury? A natural place to turn for an answer is, again, U.S. intelligence. Recall its analysis that Iran poses no military threat, that its strategic doctrines are defensive, and that its nuclear programs, with no effort to produce bombs, as far as intelligence can determine, are a central part of its deterrent strategy. Who, then, would be concerned by an Iranian deterrent? The answer is plain. The rogue states that rampage in the region and do not want to tolerate any impediment to their reliance on aggression and violence. In the lead in this regard are the United States and Israel, with Saudi Arabia trying its best to join the club with its invasion of Bahrain to support the crushing of a reform movement there, and now its murderous assault on Yemen, accelerating a growing humanitarian catastrophe in that country. For the United States, the characterization is familiar. Fifteen years ago, the prominent political analyst Samuel Huntington warned in the establishment journal Foreign Affairs that for much of the world, the United States was becoming the rogue superpower, the single greatest external threat to their societies. Shortly after, his words were echoed by Robert Jervis, the president of the American Political Science Association. In the eyes of much of the world, in fact, the prime rogue state today is the United States. As we have seen, 
global opinion supports this judgment by a substantial margin. Furthermore, the mantle is worn with pride. That is the clear meaning of the insistence of the leadership and the political class that the United States reserves the right to resort to force if it determines, unilaterally, that Iran is violating some commitment. This policy is of long standing for liberal Democrats and by no means restricted to Iran. The Clinton Doctrine affirmed that the United States is entitled to resort to the unilateral use of military power, even to ensure uninhibited access to key markets, energy supplies, and strategic resources, let alone alleged security or humanitarian concerns. Adherence to various versions of this doctrine has been well confirmed in practice, as need hardly be discussed among people willing to look at the facts of current history. These are among the critical matters that should be the focus of attention in analyzing the nuclear deal at Vienna.